And what a great day, huh? This is wonderful uh, just to be together. And I know I need this every single week myself. I hope you see the benefit and the value of us gathering together every single week. Um, and right now, if you could grab a Bible and open it up to the book of Second Kings. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's going to be some people walking around with those, and they would love to slip one to you. So just raise your hand, and uh, they'll get that to you. So we're in Second Kings this morning, chapter 2. As we finish up this short walkthrough through the life and ministry of Elijah, uh, just been incredible as, as we see the work of God through his prophet during a time when people's Bibles were collecting dust, so to speak, and no one was following God. They were really pursuing other gods, and um, Elijah has shown, and God's proven through his prophet that he is the one true God. He is the one true God. And uh, I'm excited because next week as we begin at Kelly Creek, uh, we will be uh, beginning uh, a short walkthrough of the so-called Four Servant Songs of Isaiah as we head towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and uh, that should be a really rich time, I think, for us in that season. Uh, but today we're in Second Kings chapter 2. I'm just going to read the whole chapter, and then I'm going to pray. It says in verse 1, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets were at Jericho, drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. 
But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on his way, some boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Father, we come before you, and we believe that you are a God who speaks, and that when you speak, you are acting, Lord, that you, your speaking is effectual in our lives, and it produces change. God, we ask this morning that your word would get deep into the soil of our heart, that it would take root, that it would grow and bear fruit, God, that you would be glorified through our lives, or that no matter where we go this week, no matter where you lead us in the future, that today would be a day, God, um, that would bring you glory, God, that would produce change in our lives, the change that you'd like to see in. So we give this time to you, God. We're dependent upon you now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm just curious this morning, have you ever said, man, those were the days? Have you ever said that before? You said that before? Um, when you say that, what often do you refer to when you're saying, man, those were the days? What do, you, what do you often go to in your mind when you say something like that? I wonder even this morning if you think about that or if you ever talk in that way when it comes to your faith in Jesus. You know, maybe there was a sweet season where you walked with God, where maybe you grew in some exponential kind of way, or um, just something moved from your head to your heart, and it just produced so much change in your life. Or maybe you had some spiritual mentor or leader or pastor, and you were just growing by leaps and bounds as you saw them follow Christ and help you along the way. Or maybe you had a community of faith that you just had deep relationship with, and as you were doing life with those people, you were like, man, this couldn't get better than this, you know? Or maybe something happened in your life and just your worldview changed, or God put something on your heart uh, for people you never had a heart for before, maybe it's going to the nations or people who are marginalized in society or something. And so you look back on some time in your life and you're like, man, those were the days, if I could just go back to that. You ever felt like that? Uh, Andrew Bernard from The Office, Andy Bernard, once said, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you actually left them. Before you actually left them. And I wonder if you resonate with him this morning. You know, sometimes I think we know, there's times where we know that we are in the good old days before we leave them too, Right? I mean, maybe this is true of you when you're looking at one of your children that you're raising and they're getting to the age where you're like, I only have a few years left and then I'm going to be sending them off to college or I have to walk so-and-so down the aisle or whatever it might be and you're kind of dreading that day because you know you're in the good old days. 
Some of you are like, no, those will be the good old days, you know, when they finally leave, you know. <laughs> or maybe, uh, maybe you have a really close friend that you're doing life with, and you just found out they're going to be moving away. And you're just like, man, I don't want that day to come. Maybe you know you're living in the good old days. Sometimes you know. That's the tone and perception of how Elisha's feeling right now out of the gate in verse 1. Verse 1 is interesting because the lead of the story is not buried at all. You're told what the story is going to be about. You're told what's coming here, right? It's like, a, it's like watching the trailer to a movie, and you've seen some of those trailers before where when the trailer's finished, you're like, I know, I've now seen the movie. I don't need to go and see the movie anymore, right? right? It's kind of that idea. You've seen the movie now. Verse 1 is the trailer, but this is a movie you definitely want to, to go and see, Okay. And uh, what we're going to see here is in what the verse 1 of this passage tells us, that Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven, away from the presence and the arm's reach of Elisha. And Elisha anticipates the end of this prominent figure, this leader in his life, the person whom he yells out, Father. You know, you saw that in the middle of the passage. He's anticipating the end of this leader's existence. And a major question arises in his mind. Huge question. It is this, if God, if Elijah's leaving, is God leaving with him? If Elijah's leaving, is God leaving with him? Uh, This is a a really interesting chapter, to say the least, and I don't normally do this, but it's really helpful to see kind of the structure of the passage because it's really structured by um, geography, if you will. I mean, just look here, how you have Elijah and Elisha, and they go to Bethel, and they travel to Jericho, and they go to the Jordan. And Elijah leaves. Something happens at the Jordan, right? And then Elisha is alone, and he goes from the Jordan to Jericho to Bethel. And when you see that, it's pretty clear right away, something happens at the Jordan. Something happens at the Jordan that I, I proposed to you this morning answers that question. And this question really matters for our lives this morning, Okay? So this is what we see. Uh, this is going to be really easy for you note-takers. I have one point, and that is this. Where is the Lord, the God of Elisha? That's what we're looking at this morning. And this question is answered right there at the Jordan. This is the question, where is God? When how I've seen him and how I've experienced him is changing. Right? What happens at the Jordan answers that question. So let's look. Verse 1, we see both Elijah and Elisha are on their way to Gilgal. And the first of this triplet pattern is laid out for us in the narrative. Elijah says to Elisha, please stay here. I'm going to Bethel. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as you live, Elijah, I will not leave you. What's that about? Like, what's happening here? Why is Elijah trying to shake Elisha off his tail, so to speak? Well, this is a test. This is essentially a test. As Elijah is about to leave and as Elisha has been following him from 1 Kings 19 when he threw his cloak on him and Elisha left everything in order to follow Elijah, right? This is the end now. Elijah's going to be gone. This is a test to strengthen, really, Elisha's resolve here of what's going to be happening. So Elisha leaves everything. He follows him. And they go and they travel on on a journey to Bethel together. They get to Bethel and the sons of the prophets come to Elisha. Right? So we're actually meant to see here in these towns that Elijah's visiting is almost like a farewell tour. You know, you see it in like sports or something. You, you know, someone declares it's my last season and every city they go and visit, there's a big celebration kind of thing. That's what he's doing. He's going along because in all these towns, 
These are like little mini seminaries of prophets. He's like 50 prophets are here that know Elijah, probably have learned from Elijah, and he's visiting him. So there's these prophets here, about 50 of them, and what do they say to Elisha? Hey, you know that today the Lord's going to take away your master, right? From over you, you know that? And Elisha says, yes, I know. Just stop talking about it, you know? This is really interesting. We get a, an image here of what this relationship between Elijah and Elisha is like, especially from an outsider's perspective. Elijah's the master. Elisha's the servant. Elijah's a prominent, huge figure. This is the fire-calling-down prophet on Mount Carmel. You know, Elisha's a nobody. He's not done anything. He's just kind of followed along the way, right? And so we get this insight here into the heart of Elisha. He's not excited about Elijah's departure. He doesn't see it as a good thing. This is like a quiet tension that's building in our passage. Elijah's passing is signaling to Elisha and to everybody the end of an era. That's what this is signaling. And what will happen now that he's leaving? This pattern continues throughout these cities. The journey moves forward to Jericho. Please stay. No, I will not stay. I'm going to go. New prophets. Hey, remember that horrible thing that you don't want to have happen today that's going to happen to you today? Yes, I know. Hush up. Okay? I'm very aware. All right? Then in verse 6, they head to the Jordan River, and the pattern is broken. There's 50 prophets. They don't say the question anymore. They stand at a distance as Elijah and Elisha cross over the Jordan. They watch. Elijah takes his cloak. He rolls it up, strikes the water. The waters part. One wall on one side, one wall on the other, and they walk across on dry ground. How easy is it for God to do things like that? Just a cloak, right? That's it. It's amazing. And you're beginning to see here, even in the route that they take, it's like a reverse route that you see Moses and Joshua take as they go and enter into the promised land, essentially. What happens in those stories, right? Moses raises a staff, waters part. Joshua leads the people by, you know, taking the Ark of the Covenant into the waters and the Jordan pulls back, Right? We're getting all these pictures here. And then when they cross, Elijah says to Elisha, not, hey, I'm going to go to this town next. That pattern breaks as well. Elijah knows this is it. This is the place. This is how I go. This is how it ends. He says this, what shall I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha says in verse 9, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What do you want me to do for you? Anything. Right? Double portion, please. He's asking for God's work to continue in his life and in the life of Israel. You see, Elisha, like the other faithful in Israel, has equated the presence and activity of God with the presence of Elijah. Right? So Elisha wants that spirit to remain, but not only to be maintained, he wants it to grow. He wants double not in a selfish way at all, though. See, Elisha's not only asking to continue the work of Elijah, but for that work to increase, to multiply. And it's really interesting, the, the narrator in, in, who writes the, the book of First Kings and Second Kings, you see eight miracles recorded by Elijah. In the life of Elisha, you actually see 16. So the narrator just really wants you to be like, yeah, for sure, double, you know? Like, count them up, okay? This is, this is incredible, Right? Elijah says, oh, that's a really hard thing. Yet, if you see me being taken, it will be so. 
If you don't, it won't. His response is essentially to say to Elisha, what you're asking me, I can't do that for you, but God can. So here's the thing, right? This isn't a magic formula thing. It's not, hey, don't blink, you'll miss it kind of idea. It's just if your eyes are focused on the glory of God, if your eyes are fixed on what God is about to do, when you see that happen, you'll know that your request is granted, right? That's what it is. And so, what happens? Verse 11, behold, which the word behold is honestly like one of my favorite words in the Bible. I love it. Because this is a word that means, hey, look over here. Look at this. Check this out. Behold, right? Chariots of fire and horses of fire separate the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This is so interesting, you guys, because as Bob showed us last week in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was a man that asked God to take his life. He was that low, right? There's not many people in the Bible who have asked God to take their life, and yet here is one of only two men who never died. It's interesting. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, what? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Do you see what this says here? Do you see what he does? He tears his clothes into pieces, which is symbolizing mourning, like in, in, the, in, the de- in the face of seeing someone die. And what does he call Elijah? Yes, he calls him father, right? But what does he also call him? He refers to him as what? The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. When's the last time you called somebody that? Right? Maybe I have that nickname in here? Nobody? Well, I wish it was mine, right? But it's not mine. We see this confirmed that this is in fact a reference and a nickname that Elijah's been given because when Elisha dies in chapter 13, verse 14, King Joash weeps over the corpse of Elisha and he cries out about Elisha, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, right? What, is, what does this reference mean? Well, chariots and horses... That's military language, isn't it? That's like strength language, right? Elijah has been seen as the strength in the army of Israel. That's the prominence that he has. He's being dubbed the nation's true strength. His presence meant God's people's security, right? To have Elijah was like having the army of God. He was the true defense system of Israel. His presence meant God was with them and they were protected. I mean, just think about it. Governments spend billions of dollars on defense systems. And here, Elisha says, Elijah, you are God's defense system to Israel, you. And now he's gone. What's the question swirling around in his mind? Well, he grabs the cloak of Elijah that was thrown on his back, most likely, in 1 Kings 19. And in verse 13, he goes and he stands on the bank of the Jordan River with the cloak in hand like Elijah did. And he asks the question that's tied up into his fear. It's tied up into his dread of Elijah leaving, into his request for the double portion. It's tied up into his statement of Elijah as the chariot and horse of Israel. And what's his question? Where is the Lord? The God of Elijah. That's the tension. That's the struggle. Where is God? Where is the living God? We saw him work miracles through Elijah. Elijah's gone. Is God gone? 
Is he, is he still here? Are the best days behind us? Are we just going to forever now? Oh, those were the days, right? Those were the days. Wish we could go back. I just wonder, have you ever elevated a person or a place or a season, just a thing, to such a high place that you equated its presence with God's presence? Have you ever done that before? Might be something you have to think about for an entire week, I imagine. It's a question worth thinking about. Then because of that, you feel the loss of that and how that, that brings this question to your mind that when you've lost that thing, you, you wonder where has God gone? Maybe you've sat there empty-handed. And you're like, well, now what? Where is the Lord? Your circumstances have changed and you've wondered, where is God? Things are different now. But are they different? Are they different? You know in your mind the true answer to that. You're all going, nope, I know God is here. He said this and this and this to me. But do you really know that? Experientially, do you, do you know that? As that swirls around in your mind. You think, I, I've known God in this way. I've experienced God in this way. And now this way is different. Right? What is it that you think you need? Where is it that you ultimately find security in your life? What, what needs to remain close by you? What do your eyes need to see? What do your hands need to hold in order to know that God is still here with you and that things at minimum, at bare minimum, they're going to be okay? Uh, Ed Welch, in his wonderful book, When People Are Big and God is Small, it's a book about fearing other people, he writes, whoever or whatever you need will control you. Whoever, whatever you need, that'll control you. That's what we're getting at. Uh, my daughter, who's going to be turning three, uh, she's a, an aspiring rock climber. And if you think I'm joking, it's weird, okay? Uh, we have this, like, stone fireplace, and if I'm not careful, I'll see out of the corner of my eye, she's, like, on, you know, the fourth or fifth one, you know, hanging in midair. It's kind of terrifying a little bit. And so she just loves heights for some reason. I don't know where she got it, not from me. I'm terrified. I won't even climb the fireplace, you know. And, um, but my goodness, uh, her newest thing is to go and stand on the ledge of the window and to jump off. And so sometimes she'll ask me to come and catch her. I'll gladly do that. That's safer than just her hoping that she doesn't die. And so I'll go over there and I'll hold out my hands and she'll jump every time and say, Daddy, catch me, Daddy, catch me, Daddy, catch me. And the other day I was like, you know what? This is so easy for me to do. I'm going to start challenging myself. And so I just start putting my hands behind my back because that's, that's easy, you know, just to do this, right? Wasn't going to happen. Right? She just got really, really mad, freaked out at me. Nope, I need to see those hands, essentially is what she said in her two-year-old speak, Okay. It wasn't going to happen. She would not jump unless she saw my hands, okay? How interesting. That's what she needs to see. Guys, you might not see it, but these puppies are the chariots and the horsemen of my daughter, right? Here, this is security for her, right? I can jump now, right? That might seem ridiculous to you. I'm not so sure I'm, not, I'm more sophisticated than Isla, if I'm being honest. It might not be somebody's hands, right? But I'm not really sure. I mean, I have to ask myself the question, what is it that is indispensable to me that I must have that assures me that God is here? 
What is it? What is it? Maybe the, the harder part of this might actually be that we like to think that we are indispensable to other people. I mean, what about you? I kind of like the idea to think others need me. That's a hard thing to process through. God did a work in my heart this last year as we began to feel this call that we weren't supposed to stay where we were in Corvallis and that God was leading us here. That wasn't an easy decision. And part of the reason it wasn't easy is I was faced with this thought that, man, I think, I actually think that these people need me and I can't leave them. Or even worse, do you ever maybe think in the quietness of your heart, God needs me. God will need me. I'm an indispensable person. You see this anxiety over Elijah's departure, this quiet dread, this uncertainty that seems to hover over Elisha. So he grabs the cloak, he rolls it up, he asks this central question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And in the moment, he strikes the water and the answer is clear. The waters part in the same way that they parted when he crossed over with Elijah. Where is God? He's right here. He's still here. Just as God was with Moses and then was with Joshua, just as God was with Elijah, he is with Elisha. You see, Elijah was never the plan. Elijah was part of the plan, guys. This story is a very real way. In a very real way, it has to cultivate humility within us, right? Because we are being confronted with the truth that we must not wrap up our hopes in any one person or any one thing other than God. I'm not the plan, right? You're not the plan. We're a part of the plan. So how is it even that from the beginning of time that what God has promised has happened? How is it when people come and go and everything always changes? Well, it's because God doesn't come and go and God never changes. And so you guys think about it. Every goodbye Every goodbye is the grace of God to help us remember this. Every goodbye is an opportunity for me to remember that. The prophets see the waters part. They seem to think that Elisha is nice, but they still want Elijah. They think God maybe whisked him away somewhere, and maybe he's like in Kareth again or on a mountain like Carmel or some widow's house, or who knows? That's what happened in Elijah's life. And so they say, hey, Elisha, go find your master, verse 16. He says, don't go. It's not worth your time. They persist. Elisha may have the power of God with him, but they still want Elijah. What are they doing? They're looking to recover the past, right? But God has moved on from the past, and Elisha's embarrassed he says, send. And they go on this three-day journey, and they come back, and then you get this whopping, probably really satisfying, if we're not lying, I told you so, right? Don't lie. You love the I told you so's, right? I honestly never get to say them. I'm always wrong. So, um, but I, I wonder what it's like. I can imagine what it's like, you know, to say I told you so. But Elijah's gone. Is God still here? We have these two random stories that I wish we could just go into tremendous detail about, but you see him go to Jericho in this city that's been cursed by Joshua when they conquer it, 
and he says, may its walls never be rebuilt. You see King, King Ahab in his reign, this guy actually rebuilds it. And Joshua says, if this city's rebuilt, it'll be at the cost of that person's son and then the next person's son, and that's exactly what happens. The city's cursed. The water is defiled. And what happens in the ministry of Elisha? It's healed, right? So it's clear God is with Elisha, right? It wasn't just the water parting. And then we go and we see this incredible story in Bethel where our first reaction is probably maybe Elisha needs some decaf, you know, maybe he's really irritated, he gets called baldy, you know, and uh, seemingly being teased, and this is always a fascinating passage, you know, because whenever you're reading it, I'm sure many of you looked up and scanned the room looking for some shiny heads and, and all those people. And then when you read that the bears come out and devour those heads, you know, everyone that doesn't have a bald head kind of frowns like, oh, this is weird, and everybody who has a bald head smiles like, yes, finally, <laughs> you know, they had what was coming, okay? Is he just uh, irritated though? Is that what Elisha is? He's just irritated? Well, no, guys. Elisha isn't sovereign over God. God is sovereign over Elisha. This is the act of God, right? This is a gang of guys coming out from the city. Have you ever been confronted by 50 guys, probably, saying to you, go up, go up, meaning we don't want you here in this city. This is the man of God, the man who speaks for God in a city that's supposedly named the house of God, it's a city where we don't want you here. This is a judgment from God, guys. This isn't teasing. This is rejection of God. And we see Elisha carrying out blessing and cursing, being gracious, yet seeing judgment being delivered. These stories validate the central question, where is the God of Elijah? He's still here. He's still working. The work must go on, right? And you might be thinking this morning, this is really cool for them, but what about the work of God in our day? Right? Where's our Elijah? Where's our Elisha? We'll go back to the center. Let's go back to the Jordan. At minimum, this moment, this translation from earth to heaven without experiencing death opens up a window. And a cool breeze kind of comes in this morning. And that window that's open is meant for us to look out this morning and wonder at what is to come. To put it to you differently, I've said it before. This is like a sign passage. I've put it to you this way. It's always helpful to me. If you wanted to go to New York City, you don't go to PDX today. Go stand at the gate and you see the sign that says New York. And you don't take a photo and then have someone come pick you up and say, I went to New York, right? That, that's telling you how to get to New York. That's just part of the journey to New York, right? That's a sign that's not a destination, right? The gate is pointing you to where you need to go. And so this morning, this story is opening the gate, you know, it's got the destination right there on the screen, and it's causing our eyes to look out and our eyes to land upon the Jordan River again. But not in the past with Joshua and not in the present with Elijah. Let your eyes wander to the Gospels and the Jordan River again. Here, John the Baptist, who was the once the prophet Malachi foretold about, saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord when he comes. See, people were always wondering, when is Elijah going to come again? So even at Passover, when they did Passover every year, there was a cup, and they're like, this is for Elijah in case he comes. They would send the kids around the house and go check the door. Maybe Elijah's at the door. They're wondering. Well, this is who it is. It's John the Baptist. It should be here on the screen. What does he say? He's out at the Jordan. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me, before Joshua, Moses, everybody. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. He went out, Jesus did, and he threw his cloak on the backs of people, so to speak, and he said, follow me, don't look back. Put your hand to the plow. Let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. Stay close. And his disciples stayed close, and they followed him from town after town and another town. And like Elisha and Elijah, Jesus told them, I'm going to go. You'll see me for a while, and then you won't see me. You'll feel lots of sorrow, but there'll be joy that'll come. He told his disciples that he was going to leave. He prophesied about his own death, but Jesus wasn't going to be taken up in a whirlwind like Elijah. No, that's not how things happen for him. He came to die a sinner's death. What was the proclamation of John at the river that day? Behold, the Lamb of God. That's that's a sacrificing image. That's the only only translation of how that is, is to be taken, right? This is sacrifice language, dying for sin language. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And it is only in the act of his death the baton can be passed, that the work can go on, that the spirit that descended on him could be sent to his people, that the promise of the sending of the spirit could become a reality, you guys. Guys, This isn't possible unless you're forgiven. This isn't possible unless you are cleansed. You're transformed by grace. I mean, if the water in my heart is defiled and its only result is death, I need it to be healed. I need something that happened in Jericho to happen in my heart. Right? If the holiest of holies were to come and live in my unholy heart, I mean, how can that even happen? How could I ask something that Elisha asks? Let there be a double portion on me. How can I ask that? Well, it's only if the Lamb of God is slain. I mean, you get this, right? I once made a terrible mistake. I had a, a coffee maker that had a, you know, it was the stainless steel kind you can't see in the pot. Apparently, there was like a bunch of old coffee in there from like a week old. Brewed some pretty expensive, nice coffee. Poured myself a cup. It was disgusting. I mean, it was, I almost threw up, right? It was disgusting, okay? Immediately, something is not right. I didn't think, oh, great, there was coffee in there, more coffee, Right? No, I needed to clean the pot in order to receive the, the holy coffee, right? Like I had to, didn't I? Right? We, we get this kind of stuff. Guys, if the God of the universe who cleanses the stream of Jericho, who controls she-bears, who parts waters, who picks up Elijah with a whirlwind, who calls down fire from heaven, who withholds rain, who shakes mountains, who speaks in a whisper... 
if that's our God, wouldn't you feel like you need a little makeover of sorts before you could ever say, give me your spirit, even if you wanted to ask? Oh, absolutely. You know, what's amazing about God is He doesn't say, clean yourself up. No, we hear, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. What kind of God is that? He's a God who continues the work. And the work wasn't done. We see Him in Acts 1, after He's died, after He's resurrected, and says, while staying with His disciples who followed Him closely, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We've already heard that language, right? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when He said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. A cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Oh, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven... He's coming again. They were so worried about the departure of Jesus, the ones who were devastated, I'm sure, on that Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It must have been a day where they just sit there empty-handed and they ask, is God still here? I mean, this was Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and He's not with us. Three days later, the tomb was empty. They see him again. Their sorrow is turned into joy. No one can take it from them, but then he ascends. And they, like Elisha, watch with their eyes. I mean, Jesus, guys, the chariots and horsemen of God, their strength and security has ascended. So how does this story speak to us? I mean, man, the same is true of us isn't it? We are sent out. The work of God isn't finished. It wasn't tied up to Elijah. It wasn't tied up to Elisha. It's not tied up to anyone else. It's bound up in the person and work of Jesus. And as He is, guys, He has ascended. He reigns. He rules. And the Spirit has now been sent into your heart, hasn't it? And the work goes on through His body, through His church, but we aren't indispensable. He is. See, now, guys, you don't have to be an apostle or a missionary to do the works of Jesus. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or an author. You don't have to be a well-known person or financially successful. You don't have to be one gender to the exclusion of another. You don't have to be one certain age. You don't have to be a certain ethnicity. You only have to be a believer because the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. And now we go in the power of the Spirit with the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? to Northeast Portland, to across the street, down the hall, across the aisle. And we go, as we go, we hear the words of Jesus ringing in our hearts, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. As this chapter reveals this to us, when you see the transition from Elijah to Elisha, but verse 14 alone by itself clearly declares to us this morning that God's power is not tied to an era of time, and God's power is not tied to any one person. I mean, just as people would be reading this and thinking, man, all this stuff that happened in 1400 BC with Moses and with Joshua, you know, the Bronze Age, this is happening now in 850 BC with Elijah and Elisha, 
right, in the Iron Age, and they're probably wondering, is this God the same? Well, the God of the Bronze Age is the God of the Iron Age. We see that here. And this point isn't wasted on us. God's works are not limited to Pentecost, and they're not limited to the Reformation, and they're not limited to the 18th century revivals. The God of history is the God of today. The historical God is the contemporary God. The God who was is the God who is. The God of yesterday is the God of today, and he will be the God of tomorrow. And our hope is in God, not in God's servants or in places or in eras. The best days aren't behind us, guys. They're ahead. They always are. You're a sojourner on a journey to the ultimate promised land. We look back, we look back with gratitude, and we remember the faithfulness of God. We don't wonder where God is. God has sent His Spirit into your heart. He is with you always. You know, God is pretty amazing. From time to time, there are these obvious moments where we see his fingerprints all over the place. Uh, this happens more often than we, we notice, but there are times where it's just it's very obvious. And it can't be written off as coincidence or something else. And I think this Sunday is one of those Sundays. I mean, I, I planned this text months ago. You know? Uh, Thomas is like, hey, I'm going to be in town for a conference. Great. Glad you're here. And then he was like, be anything? I'm here, I'm here to help. Mark's on sabbatical. We've had an amazing team of worship leaders leading us. I'm like, that'd be great if you gave them a break. Man, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for serving us. Talking to Virgil, hey, we want to support you guys. Be great if you came and shared. When can you come? Oh, March 8th. That'll be great. Oh, that's the same day Thomas is going to be here. That's pretty cool. The week after, and ask Virgil to come and share. I get a notice, hey, uh, we need to, you know, move up the construction at Dexter, you know? Uh, so when's the last Sunday going to be? Oh, March 8th. Wow, okay. It's like an end of an era here in Dexter, isn't it? This glorious cafeteria, you know? <laughs> what a homecoming almost, you know? I sit down Monday morning, like every do every week, start studying for Sunday. What's the passage? I think, man, why this passage? You know? That's my initial thought. Now I get it. I mean, to experience a Sunday of historic transition in the life of our church, and for God to place before the eyes of our heart this morning this kind of story, what grace. The reminder that none of us are indispensable. God's work isn't tied up to or bound to a building. We don't need me. We don't need any man or woman. We need the true man. The better Elijah, the true Elisha. We need God. And he's right here. Behold the Jesus this morning, you guys. Behold Jesus. 
the chariots and horsemen of God. He's here. He's reigning. He's leading us, and we have a mission. And that one mission does not depend on anyone else other than the faithfulness of God Himself. We now remember what God has done, not wishing to go back or never to let go. We know better days are ahead because our God is still at work and He's not finished. Guys, just as Jesus ascended on that day, He's going to come again. Just as they saw Him, you will. Right? What a day. And that'll be the day you've been waiting for. That's the better day. Let's all stand and pray. God, we praise you this morning for your faithfulness to us, for your grace in our lives. And we just give you glory, God, for all of your fingerprints just all over the place. We don't deserve those fingerprints. We don't deserve the spirit that you've sent into our hearts. We don't deserve you, Jesus, being the Lamb of God to take away our sin. But you are that God. You're the living God. And we stand in awe of you this morning. God, I pray that this morning you would allow us to behold Jesus, that he would truly become what we would see as the chariot and horseman of our life. God, our true security, our true um, protection, Lord, our refuge and our strength as we read this morning as we start our service. How would you be our all in all? I ask these things in his name.